Hi, everyone. It's Lindsay from the Year of Polygamy podcast. Before listening today, I want to give you some trigger warnings for this episode. We will be talking about sexual assault and sexual abuse and go into some graphic descriptions of these things. So if you have children in the room, you might want to turn it off. This is part one of part two, so make sure that you listen to both of them. They'll both be hosted on yearofpolygamy.com. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Year Polygamy Podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay. Today I'm interviewing someone who knows about the subject up close and personal, probably better than than many out there. We have interviewed a lot of interesting guests, but I think you're going to find this guest particularly fascinating. As you know, we uh, just interviewed Brielle Decker, who was one of the wives of Warren Jeffs, and she has a very unique story, but also someone who knew Warren very closely and also had a life and identity outside of Warren Jeffs is one of his sons, Roy Jeffs. Roy, can you say hello? Hi. (laughs) So Roy, uh, talking to you already, you know what kind of strikes me about you is I have a thicker Utah accent than you do. How did you get away with speaking like a normal person? How does that happen? Uh, I don't know because people always tell me I'm an Uber driver too. So I meet a lot of people and they Tell me that uh, they think I'm from Texas or somewhere in the south. Well, um, it does sound nice. I just got back from the crick, so maybe that's why. But when I go there, my accent gets real thick. Huh. Yeah, it, it has an effect on people. I don't know. I can usually tell if somebody is uh, from there. Like if I hear somebody behind me talking and if they're from there, I can tell immediately that that's where they're from. <laughs> <laughs> it's well, weird how it works. I I love that you decided to come on today. I think you're amazing. So I just kind of want to get into your story. So talk to us about, um, let's talk about where you were born and where you're from. So I was uh, actually born up here in Sandy, um, where I'm living now, kind of made full circle, I guess. Um, But I I was born up here, lived up here for um, up until I was about six and a half, and then... um, you may, you may be familiar with uh, the the Olympics, you know, coming into town and my grandpa, you know, having everybody move down there um, to Short Creek. So uh, I moved down there when I was about six and a half um, and uh, lived there for about six years. Um, and then um, when my dad kind of put us all in hiding – um, he eventually shipped me out of town around uh, January 2005. Um, and I've, I've just kind of been, um, you know, basically I've been living on the road um, since I was uh, 11. Um, so it feels nice. And I mean, it's hard to get used to being back here in Salt Lake and um, not, you know, always wanting to move. That's, you know, it's, it's hard to get used to being in one place. Um, so I've, I'm finally back here and, um, you know, despite everything that's happened, you know, I'm uh, going to school and, um, yeah, that's know. great. So talk to me about your parents. Obviously we've talked about who your dad is, but, um, 
Tell me about your parents and tell me about your early memories as a kid in Sandy. So, um, my, my dad, obviously, you know who my dad is. My mom, um, her name is Gloria, Gloria Barlow. Uh, she was the daughter of Alma Barlow, who's one of the famous Barlow boys, um, from Short Creek. Um, she was, my, my mom was, uh, always kind of, um, she was always, um, riding the line between supporting my dad and being the, the, uh, support for me. Um, really, you know, pretty much the only person, um, in, in most cases that was, um, I felt like was on my side despite, you know, trying to support my dad. Um, but I mean, I, I have, a, you know, always all of my memories with her are very fond. I can remember being up here, um, in Salt Lake and my dad for the first few years of her marriage with him, um, he had her working for the uh, construction company uh, Steeds Construction Incorporated, and she was doing some accounting and stuff. And I, I, I remember um, being very attached to my mother, so much so that uh, I snuck in the back of her van and rode all the way to work with her. <laughs> one, wow. One time, which I got in a lot of trouble for, but I, I love my, loved my mom's very much. Always have, always will. So let's back up for a minute because you mentioned the Barlow boys. So I know who they are. Obviously, I spent a lot of time in the Crick. But right. will you explain to people um, the Barlow boys? Because in LDS Mormonism, we have something similar. We have these families with names like the McConkies and the Bensons and the Kimballs and the Hinkleys. And if you have a last name of one of the leadership, everybody knows who you are. And it's the same way in uh, Mormon fundamentalist communities. And the Barlows are one of those families. So can you kind of explain that to people? Yeah. So, so the Barlow family, the reason they um, kind of basically, um, I would say starting in about the 1950s on up to um, when my dad took over, then he kind of ousted most of those uh, Barlow boys. But they, they were uh, basically the Barlow boys were sons of John Y. Barlow. So he's my great grandpa. And he was um, he was he was one of the prophets, um, the prophet before Leroy S. Johnson or Leroy S. Johnson, who I'm named after. Um, he was he was the prophet before uh, Leroy S. Johnson. And then the Bartle boys were were pretty close um, to to Leroy S. Johnson. And um, they they just kind of um, I, I, I'm not familiar with how they wedged their way in, um, but they, they kind of um, were they were they basically were a part of the church. Um, they were born into it. They were kind of the first generation of people that were born into the FLDS as we as we knew it growing up. And so they, they were um, and because they were John Y. Bartle's sons, that was primarily um, the reason that they were um, well, well regarded or their name was kind of held in esteem for several years. So your mom being a Barlow would have meant that she came from, I, I, I don't know how to say this without it sounding offensive, um, a good family lineage, like a, a good solid family lineage with some royal fundamentalist blood in there. Right. And, and, and just to, to, um, ju just to, um, explain like how, how important that was. My dad would use that against me all the time. He'd say, you're, um, you're being watched very closely. 
because of who you are, because your 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 father's a prophet referring to himself, your grandfather, Ruland Jeffs, is a prophet, and your great grandfather, Joan Y. Bartle, is a prophet. So that that could be held against you as well. Um, but yes, it, it was it was considered that she was from you know this this royal lineage. And I'm going to ask this. This is generally something for outsiders to know that you don't go around asking people from polygamous backgrounds this question, but I'm going to ask you anyway, because I know the listeners are going to want to know what number was your mom? What number wife? She, she was my dad's third wife. Yeah. Okay. And can you kind of explain that hierarchy too? in, in Warren's family was the closer you were to number one, the higher up you had with status or how did that work? No, not at all. Um, it, my mom, she was, she was kind of a mom to the rest of the moms, but she was, um, she was never, um, up there on my dad's favorite list. Um, as I mentioned, we were in hiding back in 2004, 2005. And from then on for, you know, several years off and on, but, um, for you to be in hiding, that wasn't that wasn't um, you know being that that wasn't being held in any esteem in my dad's estimation. It was it was a punishment to be in hiding. So the wives that my dad held um, in, in reverence were the wives that he allowed to be close to him and allowed to see him. Um, it, it didn't matter what number you were. Obviously, his first wife. Um, I mean, his second wife, Barbara. She died pretty early on into um, my dad's, um, I, I, I guess you couldn't really call it tenure, tenure but my dad's, um, my dad's uh, rule as the prophet. So, so she kind of wasn't really around to experience um, any sort of, um, you know, major inequality with, with, with his large number of wives that he ended up taking in. But um as far as the, 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 I mean, the majority of my dad's, um, elite wives where he had, you know, his, his quorum of seven or whatever, those were the majority of them were either, um, his, his newest wives or the ones he had taken, you know, some of them or a few of them were the ones he had taken at the age of 13, um, or younger, even down to 11. Um, and, I mean, I can only think of, I mean, my dad's first wife and then the rest of them were his younger wives or wives he had married um, that were previously married to my grandpa. So, yeah, that that didn't have anything to do with hierarchy, um, the the the, uh, the the closeness to the being the first one, I guess. Thank you. And so let me give the listeners sort of a recap and you tell me if I if I get this right or correct me. So Warren Jeffs is kind of, by all accounts, sort of an average guy living in Salt Lake City. Um, he's working the Alta Academy, eventually becomes, which is the FLDS school up in Sandy, Utah at the time, becomes a principal at some point. As Rulin gets sick and Rulin is Warren's father, Rulin starts to get more and more integrated and eventually helps uh, Rulin, maybe convince Rulin, we don't know how much influence he had, to have everybody move down to Short Creek because they prophesied that the end of the world is coming with the Olympics. So your childhood, you mostly, a lot of it, your early days are Warren Jeffs as your, the regular polygamous guy, not polygamous prophet, right? Um, yeah, uh, up, up here in Salt Lake, but it was pretty quick. 
it was actually, so we moved down in 1998 and by late 1998, early 1999, my dad had kind of wedged his way in to become the first counselor to my grandpa. So the, the primary, like that, those, those, um, those, the primary part of my childhood, um, from, you know, the age of six and a half to, um, you know, 10, um, the, you know, those, those few years, um, was when my dad, um, you know, had, after my dad had wedged his way up there. So he was, I mean, I guess he would have been, um, just turning 40 or yeah. Cause it's been, it's been, uh, what, like 20 years. So he would have been, he would have been around, um, oh, I guess his late forties around that time. So, I mean, I, I was, I was, I was born when he was maybe in his thirties. Um, but the primary amount of my life, um, he's been in, you know, the church hierarchy. So let's talk about, I want to talk about the difference between your experience, your experience with your dad, your relationship with your dad while you're in Sandy. And then when you move down and your dad starts, you know, he's the first counselor, you move to the Crick, then you have, and for those who don't know the Crick, I'm talking about Short Creek, which are the towns of Hildale, uh, Utah and Colorado City, Arizona. And Warren Jeffs would eventually have a lot of property and, and basically take over the community down there. But let's talk about Sandy. What was your relationship with your dad as a young child? So I, I can rarely remember being one-on-one with my dad or him being there as a dad for me. I can remember a few times being chastised by him. Um, that Those are generally the only times one-on-one. I can remember um, one time he took me to get shoelaces and we got raspberry-filled donuts. And another time or maybe two, he took me over to Alta Academy to have the high school girls practice cutting hair on me. And those were like the only only times I remember um, being one-on-one with my dad or where, you know, he was being a dad to me. Um, obviously, there was, you know, one of my earliest memories was when my, my dad um, sexually abusing me. And that that... Um, obviously had a huge effect on my life, but I I really didn't have a relationship with him at that young age. However, uh, speaking to my, my sisters that were older and remember it, you know, because obviously I was a kid, but, um, they remember my dad just going out of his way to, um, tell my mom how much of a failure I was going to be. And, uh, just, just telling her saying, if you don't change how you're raising your son, um, he's going to fail or, you know, which, which in, in their minds, uh, apostasy or leaving the church is, is failure. So he was constantly saying that to her. And, and my belief is that I heard a lot of that as a kid, because from my earliest recollection, I, I've always thought that I was going to be a failure. I, that was always in my mind. I never understood why. Um, but I'm pretty sure that I heard that as a kid. And I feel like that um, that just kind of ingrained in my mind that that's that I was going to be a failure. Um, so it it uh, I, I just I really didn't have much of a, a relationship with him. Um, OK, so just break down the family dynamics, too. So from your mom, how many kids Then how many brothers and sisters do you have? And then just for fun, because I love 
asking uh, my my polyg friends this. How many cousins do you have? <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I have no Can idea. We, is it safe to say at least 300? Oh, far more than that. Yeah, far of more course. than that. Okay, so how many how many siblings did you have and in, in um from your mom, your biological mom and how many were boy and gir- boys and girls? So, my mom, she had three boys, um one girl. I'm the oldest. Um I have one brother younger than me, then a sister, then a younger brother after him. Um, that, that's from my mom, but I had, um, I think by the time my dad went to prison, there was a couple of kids that were born after he went to prison. Um, but in all there's right, I think 49 or 50, um, total. And it's kind of half and half with boys and girls. So he, this is the interesting thing about Warren Jeffs. He actually had more wives than he did children. Yes, 80, well, I think it was 78 to be exact, but yeah, it was right, right around there. Okay, um, um, so you, but you have, so you didn't have a lot of um, experience with your dad, he, but they were kind of negative or shaming. Um, was that because, was there something that he picked out about you, or is that how he treated all the males in his family? Why do you think that he treated you that way? And, and see, and that's something that I struggled with forever. Um, and, and I couldn't understand why he would treat me that way from a very young age. And my only, my only conclusion has been, um, maybe, um, because I, I don't know, maybe he felt guilty for what he did to me as, as a, I mean, cause my, 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 uh, recollection of him, um, sexually abusing me was when I was, I mean, it's one of my very earliest memories and it's like, I mean, I was three or four. And so my, my only conclusion has been that because he, um, sexually abused me, maybe it reminded him of the guilt or made him feel guilty when he saw me. I don't know. Okay. And I'll let you talk about that as much as you feel comfortable to let people know, because I think that even still in Short Creek, there's this idea that I, even in the town of people that who have left the FLDS that think maybe, you know, there was a case where a nephew accused Warren Jeffs of sexually abusing him. And people say, oh, no, Warren was never in into that. It was, you know, it was just yeah. underage wives. Do you do you want to go into that or would you rather not? Um, no. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I yeah, I, I would like to go into that because I think it's it's vital for people to understand um, and, and it was really hard for me to understand. And, and it really all made sense to me when my sisters came out, because that was the first thing they told me is they said, they said, cause I, I told them what happened to me. And they says, uh, it happened to us too. You're not the only one. Um, and, and obviously for them, it happened a little more extensively and, and mine, mine is only one recollection. But yes, it did. It did happen. But yeah, I I'd definitely like go deeper into that. Yeah. Okay. So I, yeah, let's just talk about it. So let's talk about, I think it's interesting. I think you've picked up on something that I've definitely in all my years of doing this, the shame that you're talking about. It's like your father projected his shame onto you. Right. And I, I can't imagine how confusing that would have been. But um, tell us about the experience as much as you want to share. And then we can kind of talk about your siblings experience as well. 
Okay. So, I, I mean, like I said, it's only one recollection that I have, um, but, you know, nevertheless, it's still, it, it affected, it affected my whole life and it, and it still affects me to this day. But the, the recollection that I have um, was, you know, before, before we got the addition here, um, the addition to the house that's actually, you know, still standing. Um, it was it was in a bathroom and he just basically said to me, don't ever do this. Like like almost like he was teaching me how to never touch myself. But then he touched me and and I was very confused. Um, I thought it was my fault. Um, and I thought that for, you know, all all my life, I was like in, even for, you know, up to a year after I left, I thought it was my fault that for some reason, like, because he, he, he made me feel guilty by doing it to me. He made me feel like I had done something wrong, like almost as if I had done the act. And so it was, it was, it was really confusing to me. And, you know, there, there were things off and on growing up that happened, you know, just, just learning who I was and just dealing with the natural um, urges that kids have growing up that, um, he he shamed me as well, and it, that went on to clear clear until you know recent you know up until I left. He was still he was still telling me that that was the reason, the sole reason that I was not able to be with the family, that I wasn't able to see my mother, um, that I wasn't able to talk to any of my siblings. The reason that everything bad in my life that was happening to me was because I hadn't learned how to control my sexual urges with myself. And, you know, which, I mean, that's fancy words for masturbation, but. Yeah, we, as LDS people, we're quite familiar with, with that rhetoric too. Yeah. <laughs> Talk about yeah. It quite a bit. <laughs> and so, I mean, I, I mean, in there, it's like, they're, they're always hounding on these personal morals, which is fancy rhetoric too, but. So he was, he was constantly hounding on, on me for that. I mean, I can remember him calling me, when I was when I was uh, 12, 13 years old, calling me and saying, you're the only one of my children that's not good enough to be here in Zion because of this. And I couldn't I, you know, this was I mean, I didn't realize this until after I left. This is natural. It's how it, we're, we're humans. It's how we, you know, we're born with hormones. And and so he was guilting me for having hormones and I couldn't, you know just constantly shaming me and I just kept, you know, doing it, doing it, doing it. But well, and first of all, I'm so sorry that that happened to you. And, and second of all, I'm really happy that you're talking about this because this is such a plague in our culture too, in the LDS church. I mean, like you said, it's such a natural urge. Everybody's doing it. Everybody's pretending they're not doing it and everybody's feeling so much shame about doing it. And, you know, I've talked to young men who have attempted suicide over it, or, um, I actually talked to three young men who did the LDS church's 12 step program and all three either thought about or attempted castration. And so it's, it's, it's a huge problem, but yours is particularly pernicious because, first of all, you were victimized at a young age. Uh, it kind of sets you up for this idea that there's something wrong with you. And then you're re-victimized repeatedly over and over and over as he tries to weaponize this first assault on you, against you. And so I can't imagine how confusing and 
and how much shame you might have felt. Yeah, it was. I mean, it, it, it was crazy because it I mean, looking back, it almost felt to me in many ways, I felt like I was being publicly humiliated, even though like, I mean, for for a couple of years there, you know, I was isolated. It was me and my mom. And there was like, you know, a caretaker in the house. But in general, it's just me with my mother. And I was isolated for years um, because of that. And so I, I, uh, I, I don't know. It was it was a. Uh, so explain all of this to people, caretaker, um, why you were isolated. Those who have been following the podcast should be pretty well caught up on that. But for people who are listening for the first time, talk about what your father starts to do with the church. From my understanding, your grandfather, Rulin, he had some of these rules, but Warren sort of takes it up a notch or two. Yeah. yeah. Oh, or, or tan. <laughs> I felt like tan. And I felt like tan overnight. Um, no. Um, so I mean, my grandpa, he didn't really, um, really make any, any radical changes to, to the way things had been operating for, you know, several decades. Um, you know, and he had his stroke, I think in 1997, it was either 1997 or 98. He had his stroke. And that's when things just like my and, and it seems seems to be obvious now that that's when things just gradually, excuse, excuse me, started to change. Um, you know, my dad, obviously, they believed in, you know, the year 2000, the end of the world, um, all of that stuff. But my dad just started. Um, he was the spokesman. He became the spokesman for my grandpa. My grandpa started not talking in meetings. He would come to meetings, but he would just sit there and then my dad would talk. And then my grandpa would say, um, I couldn't have said it better. Um, you know, Warren speaks for me, blah, blah, blah. The same thing over and over again every Sunday. But, um, it, it got more and more, you know, a little bit worse. My dad, you know, all of a sudden started saying, um, that my grandpa was going to be renewed and that he was, you know, going to, um, you know, there was just no doubt in anybody's mind. Like, we're just like, yeah, he's, even though he's like 92 and he can't walk and he can barely talk, um, you know, he's just going to be, you know, we even made a song, um, he shall be renewed. It was like a whole thing. But, and then, and then, uh, my, my, uh, I mean, I guess as far as the, the manipulation went, I mean, it, I remember hearing it at the time, hearing that people were saying my dad is manipulating and we were just appalled. We were just like, yeah, no way. Like, um, you know, grandfather is, you know, so perfect and basically father's like right next to him. But did you have a relationship with your grandfather? No, I didn't. I can re I mean, I mean, I shook his hand. We would go through on like, Fridays, um, Saturdays, they had like a, or sorry, Saturdays and Mondays, they had like a Saturday work project meeting and then a Monday morning meeting. And we would usually go through with my dad after and shake my grandpa's hand. But that's really, I mean, I, I think I talked to him once and I asked him if I could get baptized. That was the only time I ever talked to my grandpa. Um, had no, no relationship with, with him whatsoever, but um, he had so many grandkids, we really couldn't. 
How about on the Barlow side? Um, I mean, I, I tried to, well, I, I, I mean, I was a kid. I couldn't really try to because we were physically separated. Um, but I, I mean, my mom, she would take me over to my grandpa Alma's house. I always, I always loved going over there cause they like had, you know, cold cereal and stuff we never got. But, um, I, uh, she, she tried to, do you, do you mean like cereal daddy, with milk? Is that what you mean? What's that? Do you mean like cereal that you pour out of a box with milk? Yeah, okay. yeah, because we never got that. And they had that, and they had like treats and stuff. We didn't ever get candy or anything like that. But um, my my mom, she would take us over there, like, you know, on um, sometimes we'd go see them during the Harvest Fest, or we'd, we'd, we'd randomly sometimes pop in there and say hi to my grandpa and my grandma. We always loved going to see them, but um, after my dad took over, he told my mom that we couldn't. We just plain couldn't go see him anymore. And we were living in the same town, you know, two miles, three miles away, and we couldn't go see him. And, so at this point, uh, were you you're in the creek now? Um, now I had just posted online about I just I got to spend this last weekend uh, sort of camping out in the abandoned home of Warren Jeffs. Oh, yeah, I got it all to myself. Is is super interesting. Um, there's like three that, of us. I can't, I can't explain how many times, um, cause he sent me there, he sent me there, um, at, like as the only child there, he sent me there back in 2004 after he'd taken the rest of the children there. That place was so haunted. So haunted. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I gotta say like we went in, okay, I, this is, I'm going to make it about me for just a second, but we, yeah. we go there, um, everybody's a little creeped out, but you know, we're trying to support Brielle who has the home. And, and so we kind of have this pep talk before that we're not going to go in and worry about ghosts and creepy stuff. We're going to go and just sort of let our light radiate outwards, sort of disrupt the bad energy, be positive. And so we're doing that and, you know, we're holding strong. But after, after my day on Saturday, I had a bunch of meetings and I got to meet with actual, you know, faithful FLDS I got to spend a few hours alone up in the house that night and it was funny because I felt so calm and I thought this is so strange to feel so calm here but I thought you know I once had a friend tell me after the first year I did the podcast I was really angry and she said wow this room just had to expand three times to fit all your anger and and as I was sitting there that night I was like oh wow I think I'm comfortable here because the house is big enough to hold all my anger like it's big enough, <laughs> it's <definitely> big enough. <laughs> so I get that, but I, you know, you just said something really interesting to me where you said that you were the only child he sent there. Roy, I can't figure out why your dad singled you out over and over and over again. I, I spent a lot of time um, looking inward for years. Um, and obviously I thought that it was because of, um, it was because of my, you know, my urge to masturbate or whatever. Um, and I spent a lot of time like trying to figure that out too. And I, I don't know, I still haven't been able to come to, to a conclusion of what he had against me. Um, or if he had something against my mom and was taking it out on me, but it, that, that did happen. It happened. I mean, it happened for years. And then when I finally got to be back with the family and I mean, obviously, you know, some of them are out here now and, 
you know, it's, it's a different situation, but being back there with the family, even after that, I didn't feel like I was part of the family and most of them didn't want me there. Like, and and he, he, so the narrative is that you're the sinner that can't control yourself. Of course, we, you know, we know the truth that <laughs> clearly, uh, you're not the one with the issues in the scenario, but I have to ask this. What was the F- FLDS term for masturbation? What did you guys, what was the language? Uh, I don't know. It seems like they had a ton of definitions. It was like, they would always say, um, personal morals. That seemed to be the predominant, the predominant thing. Um, we use self abuse a lot. Have you heard that? The what? Self abuse. I don't, I think that came after my time. Okay. Yeah, no, that's, that's an LDS one. Oh, is it? Yeah. No. Ours, I, th- I think in there, they, I mean, I, I can remember the first time I heard the word masturbation. It was when um, uh, I was, I was uh, confessing my sins for like the thousandth time to Wendell Nelson, who's out here now. I was confessing my sins to him, and he's like, oh, you mean masturbation? I was like, what? What's that? <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't say that. I went and like looked it up, I think, in the dictionary. Oh, but- my gosh. That, I mean, I'm not laughing at that. It's just it's LDS. <laughs> like they, I remember we'd have our bishops come in and say, we're going to be really frank with you. We're going to have a very frank discussion. And then they would say, no petting or, or heavy petting or necking. And all of us would be like, wait. What does that mean? We don't know. We don't know what that means. So it's so funny. It's so strange. These like constructs that we come up with and, and the shame, but yours, especially because it was, here's the, here's what people need to understand your sins. And I'm using those in air quotes because of course I don't think they're sins, but they were used to not only like shame and humiliate you, they were used to keep you away from the family. So explain the function of why you were separated from your family. Cause that is still something that doesn't make sense to a lot of people. So, uh, originally back in, uh, I mean, uh, November, I'm pretty sure I'm exact with this date, but it would be November 29th of 2003. Um, and previously to this date, then my dad had started, you know, a few family members had just, you know, kind of vanished and we were just told to not ask questions. But November 29th, 2003 was a big day because, um, it was that night my dad said, everybody go to your rooms and don't come out um, until tomorrow morning. And the next morning we woke up and the house was dead. I mean, you can imagine a house with, um, you know, 80. Well, at that time it wasn't quite 80, but you can imagine a house with a lot of women and a lot of kids. It is, and these are little kids. We're not, not rare, very few adults. And it, it's how many rooms are in that house? Do you know? Freaking beehive. I, I, I told a group last week there was like 60, but I, I think I was wrong. I think there's 42. Yeah, I should have counted, but 42 sticks in my mind. In that, that's in the south house. There's a whole nother, um, easy 50 in the north house. Um, the, the South house has, I think 42 to be exact. So he, so would he call you all together? Was it even possible to get you all in the same room? Oh yeah. Yeah. We, we all met, um, up in that, uh, top floor, uh, in the green room in the middle. Yeah. The, the big, the big, the, the green room, basically the stairs come up and they go right into, you know, right at the top of the stairs. There's like a big big open room that's where we met for years that's where i was hanging out the other night so yeah i totally get it 
Yeah. So he tells you to all go in your room. He tells us he told us to all go in our rooms and um, and not come out till the morning. So I come out and it's just dead in the morning. And I go to my mom's room and her eyes are just bloodshot red. And her just she's just been crying and crying and crying all night. And I was just like, like I would rarely seen my mother cry. And I was just like, what happened? What what's going on? Where's Rulin and Trish? And she just didn't really say anything. And um, I think eventually she was just like, they're gone. And I was like, what do you mean they're gone? And she's just like, I can't talk about it. And um, so we, you know, kind of started moseying through the house and um, I went, you know, go to find uh, the other kids that were my age because my dad had taken every all the kids that were eight years old and younger, which uh, that's the baptism age, as you know. Um, and basically they were I, I don't know. He had picked those kids because they were all innocent, I guess, because the rest of us were horribly guilty <laughs> of something. But he had uh, he had taken all the kids eight and younger and. I, that was like the first sense of just just desperate loneliness I had in that house. Um, and, you know, it only got worse from there. A few days later, then he he had us, uh, he had the rest of the kids, um, us, he had the rest of us um, shipped to uh, Jim Allred's house there in town. And we just kind of, we kind of uh, moved around there in town a bit, went from Jim Allred's to my Uncle Leroy's house. Um, so and, were you not allowed, so were you allowed to talk to your mom at this point? Yes, my mom was with me at this point. When I moved to my Uncle Leroy's house, that was my first time being separated from her. He, he had my mom move to, back to the property um, there, the Jeff's property. And he had me move to my uncle Leroy's house. And that was my first, like, I remember just going, you know, that I was freaking scared. I was, I was like 11, I think. And I was just crying my eyes out. I miss my mom so much, even though she was like, I felt like she was like gone forever, but she was, um, you know, two or three miles down the road. But can I just be- highlight that really quick? Because this some, I'm sometimes guilty of this. When I talk to people that have big plural families, and you could argue you were in one of the largest plural families that we know of, you kind of forget that like it seems so formalized. Your relationship with your father can be so formalized. And I kind of sometimes forget that people are actually really close to their families. And it sounds like you were a mama's boy and you loved your mom and... Um, cause you know, everyone's reassigned now down there, which means Warren has moved kids around and, and, yeah. uh, families around. And when I was talking to the faithful FLDS, I asked, I asked one of them about it and she said, well, it's a blessing. Uh, sure. It's hard at first, but it, it's a blessing. And I, and so it's almost like you, in my mind to sort of deal with this sadness, I forget that actually you're really connected to these people. They are your family just because there's so many of them. It doesn't oh, mean yeah. you don't care. And, and in particular, at least at that time in particular, like like there was there was a very deep I mean, just like out here, there's a very deep connection to your biological parents. Um, and, and in particular, my mom, like I, this was the first time 
in my whole life that I had been away from my mom for, you know, I mean, I'd probably been away from her for, I can remember back when I was six, she came up here to Salt Lake to have her youngest ruling. And that was, that was a scary time for me. And it was, I don't know, maybe a week, but it, it was it, it, like she, we did. We, I mean, now it's, it's a whole different story where it's just, you know, my dad just kind of just ripped and shredded those ties, but we, we were, we were very emotionally connected and, and that was really hard for me at that point. Um, being 11 years old and I just didn't know. I was just like, you know, I remember calling like crazy, just trying to, trying to get a hold of my mom to make sure that like she was still, um, there and that she didn't get called to go to Zion and that I was left behind. I, I was so deathly worried that I was going to get left behind and my mom was going to get to go to Zion um, oh, without me. That's... I was so freaking terrified. That is so sad to me. And, and and for those who don't know, this is a big deal. So Warren had been building this property in Texas, which of course gets raided later on. But you'll talk to many families who Warren started sending, you know, quote, the elect, the the highest up, the most celestial people, if you will, to this property. But no one, no one knew that it was there. They just sort of whispered about it. Like it was Zion, like you said. Well, yeah. We just called it Zion. We didn't know that there was like multiple properties. We didn't know where it was. Like I didn't even find out where it was until I was on my way there. I so, had no idea. I want you to talk about this idea though, because this is common, I think, throughout all the groups in Mormonism where, and I certainly experienced this in the LDS church where, from my experience, I was taught polygamy was weird and wrong and it's something that those crazy people in Southern Utah did and they were doing Mormonism wrong. But, and I was supposed to be uncomfortable with it, but I'd have to live it in heaven. And that messed up my brain because I thought <laughs> heaven doesn't sound great. Talk to me about the the idea of Zion being kind of a terrifying thing that that separates families. Talk to me about that. Well, so I mean, the idea of Zion um, it, it kept morphing into different things as time went on. But at this time, Zion in our minds was, I mean, if somebody was worthy at that time to go to Zion, they were basically perfect. Like if, if you found out that somebody was going um, to Zion or was in Zion, um, they were they were basically perfect at that time. Um, and my dad would call us and he would say, you know, the tests are so much greater in Zion and you have to be so much more prayerful and so much more fervent. And you don't even understand how bad it is in Zion as far as like the requirements and the, you know, the restrictions and the rules. And let's and just point out, I mean, I think it's on Prophets Pray that one of the gentlemen that got called there was like, yeah, I got called to Zion and I was secretly downloading music and doing all these sins. Yeah. I mean, so when yeah. you say they're perfect, like they appeared to be perfect, but they weren't. Right. And, and which was even confusing to me because I remember having a few evil thoughts on my way there. <laughs> I was, I was just like, I mean, I, I, yeah, it, it didn't Wait, make talk sense. Talk to me about that. So, so let's back up. So you get called to Zion eventually. So you're split up from your family. You're moved around, shuttled around from house to house. And this is, I know this sounds confusing to people, but this is pretty much Warren's MO is he just sort of started creating chaos and confusion. A lot of people think the FLDS have always been living this way. And it's really Warren Jeffs that comes in, mixes everything up, adds all these crazy rules, makes everyone start wearing prairie dresses and, 
just it's just chaos from the the minute yeah. he shows up. Well, I, I mean, as far as the prairie dresses go, those were those were. Uh, I think that I mean I I don't ever remember a time that those weren't implemented, but he he more or less. Um, well, my grandpa kind of went after the long underwear, but yeah, it did not used to be that way. I mean, I can remember one holiday after my after my dad took over. We had that was the last harvest festival we had was in two thousand two, um, which was pretty much the highlight of the year for everybody in town. It was like a three four day event. Um, where, you know, they're in Cottonwood Park where it was just like, you know, basically a carnival without the rides, but you know, there it was, it was just a big celebration. Um, and we had that last one in 2002 and by June of 2000, um, by June of 2003, my dad had scrapped basically he, that was the first time he publicly came out and corrected um, Truman Bardo, um, and Dan Bardo, two of the Bardo boys, he had corrected them publicly for, um, building a monument there at that. And I think you visited that old pioneer park. They had erected a monument to, um, uncle Roy, Roy Johnson, um, that was in reference to the 1953 raid. And my dad came out publicly and says, and corrected them and says, you guys are in error. Or, or, um, you, because you're not giving God all the credit, you're, you're giving uncle Roy the credit rather than God. And funny and that had, that didn't seem to go both ways, huh? Yeah, it didn't seem to go both ways, but he had them take that, he had them take that monument down and like literally jackhammer it apart. I think I remember something and I could be getting my facts a little muddy, but didn't he also, didn't your father also order that some of Johnson's sermons get like churned up and turned up with the manure do you know what i'm I talking about I, I i don't know that may have happened after i left but as far as what i know when i was there no i did hear that after i left he started you know like telling us that um some of the previous prophets or previous um um you know loyal priesthood holders like fred you know fred jessup and some of those others you know he would he would come back and say yeah they're like condemned to hell um they're actually even though you know years before he had said they were perfect and you know gone to heaven or whatever so interesting to see how he consolidated his power well yeah and then and then uh constantly contradicts himself now in so many ways Utah women making local music. If you like the music on this podcast, it comes from a band called Lady Murasaki. You can check them out at ladymurasaki.bandcamp.com.